0: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. It is
1: hard to think of an entertainer who has brought as much unbridled joy to as many generations as Julie Andrews. My life has been
2: so fortunate. I've had most extraordinary good fortune in my life. The, uh, and I, I sort of put it into three categories, the three major stepping stones, one being that opening night when I was 12, when it started my career, the second being going to Broadway, and the third going to Hollywood. And each one of those happenings happened under the most extraordinary circumstances.
1: On this episode, you'll hear those stories and a few more, too from the remarkable 70-plus-year career of Dame Julie Andrews. She may very well have good fortune, but she's got even greater talent. Whether your favorite things included seeing her on London's Vaudeville Circuit or on stage in My Fair Lady and Camelot, whether you grew up watching Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, or The Princess Diaries, Shrek, and Despicable Me. Whether you've read her memoir or her many children's books, Julie Andrews has no doubt been a part of the fabric of your life. And there might just be a special place in hell for anyone who doesn't love her. That's this host's opinion anyway. You're listening to What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the
2: opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance.
1: It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There
0: was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth, darkness over light, death over life.
1: Every day I wake up and decide, Today, I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide.
0: Decide. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there.
3: (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them.
1: Julie Andrews will tell you her career really began in 1947 when she was 12, but the truth is, She first appeared on stage at the age of two. You've done your
2: homework. Yes, my mother's sister, my mother was the pianist, my aunt was the uh, dancer. And uh, they were two extraordinary ladies. I'd love to write about them one day. And she founded a dancing school, which uh, uh, she eventually, oh, I think for almost 50 years, was in Walton on Thames. And um, she would put on her local shows, and uh, that was when I think I made my debut, my real first debut. I think I was either winking, blinking,
1: or nod, one of the three. Needless to say, Julie Andrews cannot remember a time when she wasn't a performer. Walton-on-Thames is the name of the village in Surrey, England, where she was born. Today, it's a suburb of London, but back then it was just a country stop on the railroad line. As she told the Academy of Achievement in two interviews, one in 2004 and one more recently in 2018, music took her far from that village. Her dad was a schoolteacher and her mother, as she just mentioned, was a talented pianist. But her parents split up when she was five and her mother remarried a man who was a very fine tenor. They might've gone on to serious concert careers, but circumstances conspired, and instead her parents toured as a vaudeville act. When World War II escalated and Julie Andrews' school was forced to close, her stepdad decided to give her some singing lessons, and he discovered that his little girl had a freakishly beautiful soprano voice with a four octave range and perfect pitch. Pretty soon, Andrews told journalist Mary Jordan in this interview, she joined their act. But life was not all Mary Poppins. No,
2: definitely. A lot of people have always thought that I was from a very wealthy family and that uh, life was just easy and, you know, that I had a singing voice and blah, 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 but it actually was a very hardworking childhood. And
3: What was the hardest part about the way you were brought up?
2: I think, like any child of of divorced parents, that's hard. And also the circumstances, the war, the um my mother's and my stepfather's problems, um, And I thank God when you're very young, you don't know any better, and you you really don't know how tough it might be. and it's only on looking back that you put it in perspective and and get it all figured out. I don't know if, well, I think a lot of children have that resilience of optimism and youth and energy that gets them through no matter what. And I had I had one or two really good people about me. I mean, you just need to, one mentor if you're lucky.
3: Well, now there's optimism. In, in your book called Home, which was a bestseller, and uh, you wrote very, Personally, and on page eighteen, I was surprised when I <laughs> What's turned. What's on page eighteen? <laughs> you said my mother was terribly important to me, and I know how much I yearned for her in my youth, but I don't think I truly trusted her.
2: Yes, she was ten times more vital and and uh, a huge than I, and hugely talented, a wonderful pianist. She should have been somebody. Uh, really, I mean, she should have been allowed to grow and develop her own talents. And she wasn't a housewife and I don't think she ever could have been, but but life and the way, she, the way she lived it and um, the circumstances again of the war and our poverty and all of those things just kept beating her down. And so I think I became the, um, the child that fulfilled her dreams if you know what i mean i don't mean that she was the worst stage mum she was actually a very good stage mum in that respect don't you dare um, complain or don't you get a big head and so on that's pretty good but she was busy she was passionate she she had uh she was also ultimately an alcoholic uh, like as my stepfather was uh, she i think she felt if you can't uh Put a stop to it why don't you just join them you know and she became one as he was
1: as it turned out even the man she thought was her real dad wasn't quite simple really
2: um uh, i was quite i was the sort of the new kid on the block i was asked to sing for friends and um, uh, always and my mum said we're going to a party tonight and if i ask you to sing i'd like you to and i Complain, oh, mum, yeah, no, but this this is an important evening, Julie. And we went to a house to people that I'd never met. I, well, I probably had met them, but didn't remember. And um my mother was not a happy person that evening. <clears throat> I did sing, and the the gentleman of the house, the uh, whose house it was, uh, there was some tingle in the air that I couldn't explain. And I just felt something, and he would asked questions of me and came and sat with me for a while. And I thought, that's odd. And I was only like 14, and why such interest? And then on the way home, um, my mother said to me, "Um, do you know why I asked you to sing tonight? And, oh, did you like the gentleman that came and talked to you? And I felt something coming at me. And I said, yes, he seemed very nice, knowing that something bigger was going to be said. And she, uh, she too had been drinking that night. So finally she said, because that gentleman was your dad. And um, I think since I sort of knew her and felt something was coming at me, I kind of slammed on the brakes. And the first thing I thought was, it doesn't make any difference. The man that has raised me is really my dad, whether he truly is or isn't. The love and trust and belief in me that he has is what I think makes a dad. And this man whom I've never met is not, I mean, he might be my uh, real dad, but not in the real sense of the word that I know.
3: Did you ever see him again?
2: Um, We did uh, uh, correspond a little bit, and he offered a much greater friendship And eventually, because I didn't think my dad knew, the man I thought was my dad knew, I said, you know what? I can't hurt the man that thinks I'm his daughter. And would you please forgive me if I didn't make a relationship out of this? Let's just leave it the way it is. And uh, uh, he very kindly and decently backed off and I just got a Christmas card every year. Just one Christmas card, that's all. So that was good.
3: Now you're jet setting millionaires globally known. Good heavens, Mary. (laughs) Well, do you ever think about the early days? I do. I mean, I, as I
2: say, I think I'm supremely lucky and blessed. How many people managed to pull up out of all the whatever you call it, all the things that happened to you as a kid? And yes, it was a very unusual childhood, but I was given one gift uh, of a voice. And I think without it, I'd have been a very lost individual when I was a kid. But I had something that gave me an identity and a wonderful singing teacher. And um, uh, I was trained very well. So I think I wasn't as lost as I might have been otherwise. But I do look back on it and I do
3: say, wow, look at that. Isn't that amazing? You said this in 2000. You could call it good manners. You could call it knowing how to work hard.
0: But I I call it
3: discipline. I call it discipline. And if you have that, you can really take off. Well, I think I said that
2: discipline is the technique that leaves me free to fly. In other words, if you've got a great underpinning of discipline, let's say, you can, once you know where, you're, where you want to be rooted or that you stick to the hard work, once, you, once you've found what you need, you can just take off and enjoy it and do it and fly with it. And that's what I mean by discipline. If you do your homework, if you do your singing practice, if you, if you, you can then afterwards On top of the discipline, you can relax and have a ball.
0: Pour a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way.
1: Julie Andrews gives her stepfather a lot of credit for handing off her vocal training to a talented teacher and fellow soprano named Lillian Stiles Allen, the woman who was largely responsible for that wonderful crystalline diction you hear whenever Julie Andrews sings. She
2: firmly believed and taught me that your voice would hold up for you if you were true to your words. And um, instilled in me this, uh, she said two or three things actually, that there could be people in the audience that needed to see what you were saying because maybe they they were hearing impaired in some way. But more than anything, if you relied on those words, the voice would come through for you. In other words, be true to your vowels, be true to the uh, consonants that were strong, um, not in a kind of glottal way, but but just really use them as stepping stones to a good foundation for a voice. She was absolutely right.
0: The honeybees that fetch the nectar from the flowers to the comb Never tire of ever buzzing to and fro Her because
1: voice teacher gave her other techniques, too, that molded her singing life. Here's how Dame Julie described it to journalist Gail Eichenthal in 2004. I sang in those days a lot of, sort of um,
2: uh, opera and operetta, um, I felt that I knew, and I, I believe that I was right, that I really didn't have the voice for it. My own voice was very white, very, very thin, and, and I was able to do these incredible sort of gymnastics with it, tremendous sort of uh, calisthenics, but uh, in a coloratura way. And it was so high that sort of dogs for miles around would howl when I took some of the high notes on. But uh, um, she... Um, gave me the groundwork of of, um, opera, and she always said, go beyond your reach. If you're doing something light, practice something even more difficult. Practice it a tone up, so that when the night comes and you have to sing it, it is so within your range. And for many, many
1: years I did that. Picture a baseball player who practices with two bats so that when he's holding just one, it feels very light, and you'll get the idea. During all the voice training and the childhood performances, Andrews had her dad to keep her grounded, the one she had considered her birth father. My dad was um, a
2: very special human being. He had an innate decency. Uh, We knew he was special. I mean, obviously, any dad to a young girl is special if if he does all the right things, and my dad certainly did. But he's the one that instilled in me any true reality in my life because on the one side I had this mad uh, upbringing of, of um, vaudeville and touring a great deal and very little schooling and uh, um, my father was the one that took me on nature walks, took me to the swimming baths taught me how to swim um, uh, took me down to the seaside in freezing cold weather and we dipped in the sea and somehow uh, when we climbed the local hills and uh, um, he gave me a love of books. Um, When I went to him, he would read to me and he would pick what he thought would be appropriate, Alice in Wonderland and things like that when I was a child. Um, But uh, he would buy books for me. I didn't see him all that much, strangely enough. Occasionally for a two week period and a summer holiday maybe or um, a visit over Christmas or um, he'd come for a weekend. and. Take me, and we'd get on our bicycles and bicycle for like 15 miles in either direction to get to his place. And uh, um, but what he did give me was always exactly right, and and uh, just the memory of him sitting and reading to me was uh, um, enough to make me love listening to books and the and, and the spoken and written word. And I also loved to scribble as a kid. I loved to write my and uh, eventually um, because I didn't have a formal education, um, a governess was uh, found for me who traveled with me wherever I went. Um, Because uh, touring in Vaudeville, you're a week in one place, a week in another, and you could not settle into any school. So um, I had this wonderful lady who traveled with me who quickly recognized that if she wanted me to do anything, uh, all she had to do was say, do this first, and then you may write your your story. And um, whatever story I was going to write, because that was obviously what I love to do most of all. And um, she was a very gentle, very kind lady, and
1: I loved her. Her name was Gladys Knight. No, not that Gladys Knight, obviously. Now, on to the debut that changed Julie Andrews' life when she was just 12 years old. It was a show called Starlight
2: Roof. It was a, a sophisticated London review, And it was at a theater which is no longer there. It was called the London Hippodrome. And it's now just a sort of a nightclub in Leicester Square, London. But it was a very beautiful theater. And um, I was literally the smallest person on the bill. And because it was so sophisticated, the producers thought perhaps uh, it wasn't right that I would be singing in this show. And the night before we opened, they decided that they couldn't use me. And, of course, (laughs) my mum, being somewhat of a a stage mum, sort of said, no, you can't do this to this child. It's her great debut and so on. So she and my stepfather and and their agent descended on the poor producer. And they said, she'll sing a much more difficult song and uh, you'll see. And so I auditioned for a much more difficult song. And the end result was that I was in the show, stayed in the show. And on opening night, the audience went crazy. And... um, It was a complete standing ovation, first thing I'd ever really done, first time I'd ever really um, uh, tried anything that important. And um, the press followed me home, you know, the kind of thing when you're a young fluke in a way. And um, that was the beginning of of a very busy few years, right through my teens, of touring and radio and early early television and so on.
1: Lucky for us they released a recording of some songs from Starlight Roof in 1947 and immortalized 12-year-old Julie Andrews.
0: Well Julie, is this the first time you've ever made a gramophone record? Oh yes, is it your first record too? <laughs> no, no, not exactly, no. How old are you? I'm 12. How old are you? Uh, uh, <clears throat> um, I think I'd better ask the questions. What are you going to sing for us? I like to sing the Polonaise from Nunez. Oh, lovely, just the kind of junk I like.
1: It was a turning point. By the age of 13, she was singing solo for King George VI and the Queen Mother at the London Palladium. The storybook was well underway but Julie Andrews did sometimes miss having a normal education and a normal life I was too foolish
2: in my teens and too busy to uh, to fight for it I did I did know that um, when my mother said I think we'll probably uh, quit school you're going to get a much bigger education out there Um, and indeed I did of a sort but um, Subsequently, especially, you know, as I got older, I really regretted not not having a college education. I would have loved that, but the kind of education I was getting was that strange uh, one of standing in the wings and watching phenomenal performers uh, performing every week, every night. Um, And they, I mean, watching everything from comedians to jugglers to animal acts to and different kinds of comedians and dancers, and um, uh, it was extraordinary. And I didn't think I was getting an education at the time. It's only in retrospect that I realized that that stood me in very
1: good stead in my later years. Other lessons from her unconventional education? Learning to play with pit orchestras dealing with drunks in the balcony on Saturday nights and navigating endless railway stations with trains that never ran on time. All those experiences came in handy and ultimately led to a part in a musical called The Boyfriend. Milestone two in the career of Julie Andrews. She landed the part after doing a series of slapstick Christmas shows that the Brits call pantomimes, though there's nothing silent about them. They're actually rip-roaring revamps of classic fairy tales like Jack and the Beanstalk and Little Red Riding Hood. One year, Julie Andrews got the starring role in Cinderella at the London Palladium, and that's where the director of The Boyfriend first saw her. The Boyfriend was a
2: hugely popular English show that had been running in London for about a year. Um, it was based, it was sort of a little light, frothy musical, a sort of pastiche of the 1920s. And they were going to take it to Broadway with a brand new company. They weren't going to touch the original English company because they were doing too well and still selling to packed out houses. So um, uh, the director of the, of the English Boyfriend came to see me and subsequently brought the American producer. And I was asked
1: if I would like to come to Broadway to be in The Boyfriend. The producers of The Boyfriend, Cy Foyer and Ernie Martin, already had gigantic hits with Guys and Dolls and Can Can. So this was a big deal. Not that any Broadway show wouldn't have been. It was a huge break. Uh, I didn't
2: uh, truly recognize how big it was. Um, I was more terrified at leaving my family, I had an awful separation anxiety about leaving home because I always was leaving home and rushing back if I could at weekends. And um, uh, they were offering me a two-year contract at an incredibly small salary. And uh, there were a great many other English performers going as well because other than one or two Americans, it was, it was an English, um, it should, all the companies should have had English accents and so it was necessary that they be English. I was um, 18, I was 19 the day after we opened on Broadway. And um, it's the first time I'd ever really been away from my family for that, for that potential length of time. And suddenly, I got so panicked about it, and um, I called in my dad, my real dad, and I said, oh, God, Daddy, they're asking me to go for two years. What should I do? What should I do? I don't think I could be away from the family for that long. And he said, well, chick, it could run two weeks or two months. It might not be two years. And it would open up your head to such an extent. I think you should do it. I asked him later in life whether that was a hard thing to do. He said it was one of the hardest things to say, go, to just throw me into the bigger pond, so to speak, and hope that I would swim. And, of course, uh, because Dad said it. Oh, he said a wonderful thing. He said... When I said, but how will I know what to do? He said, your own good brain will tell you what to do when the time comes. And so I took my courage in both hands and said, I would like to accept this contract, but I will not go for longer than one year. And lo and behold, uh, I was the only one of the company that had a one year contract. So off I went to Broadway for a year of incredible learning and education.
1: And that was the leap across the pond that led Julie Andrews into our American hearts.
0: Skies may not always be blue But one thing is clear as can be
3: I know that I
0: could be happy With you, my darling If you could be happy with me
2: What happened with the boyfriend was that Because I said I would only do it for one year, just before I was going to leave to go back to my family in England, Um, uh, and the boyfriend was a huge success, and it did sort of uh, begin to um, help my career tremendously. I mean, I think people on Broadway certainly began to know my name a little bit. But I got a call about two weeks before I was due to leave And it was a man who said, I'm the manager of um, uh, uh, um, two writers called Lerner and Lowe who are doing a new musical of uh, Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. And um, could you just answer me one question? How much longer are you in The Boyfriend? And I said, oh, I'm going home in two weeks. (laughs) And he said, oh my, I was convinced, as was everybody else, that you would have a two-year contract. And I said to the guys, well, let me make a phone call. It'll only cost a dime. And because I only signed for one year, I was able to audition for My Fair Lady. And by the most extraordinary good fortune, I was able to do My Fair Lady. And that's really when I think um, uh, my life just took off in all directions.
0: The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Again? The rain in Spain stays mainly in the play
2: I think she's got it I think she's got
1: it
0: The rain in Spain stays mainly in the play My George, she's got it! My My
1: Fair Lady opened on Broadway in 1956 at the Mark Hellinger Theatre and you know those romantic stories about actors who try out for a play and just know the part was meant for them? Well, this isn't one of those stories. I'll tell you what happened. Um,
2: I sang for Lerner and Lowe first and uh, belted out my my audition song and a couple of others and then went in to start reading from the original Pygmalion because the script wasn't quite finished. And I knew that I was hopelessly out of my depth. Um, You have to remember I was raised in vaudeville. I wasn't even on the right side of the tracks. I wasn't in legit theater at all. I had never done a play and um, other than this very, very light piece called The Boyfriend. And um, uh, so I really knew from nothing. And uh, I knew that I understood Eliza in some way, but I was hugely shy, hugely insecure. And I wondered if anybody would know that there was something inside that, that they could use if they knew how to get it out for me. And that person turned out to be Moss Hart. And I was absolutely atrocious at all the early readings and poor Rex Harrison wondered what on earth he'd been landed with. This young girl that could sing and had not a clue how to um, get into the arc of a character. I mean, I had no idea how to develop a character at all. And uh, uh, he intimidated me tremendously because he was so, so good. He was also very, very nervous and very, very um, demanding and selfish because he was scared to death because he'd never sung before. So I knew I could pull off all the singing stuff and
1: he for sure knew he could pull off all the dialogue. It was pretty daring for Moss Hart to take the risk that Julie Andrews could learn to act and that Rex Harrison could get by without singing. Rex, I think they were much more sure about
2: um, he couldn't sing, but he had an innate musicality which enabled him to kind of do a sing-speak uh, sound, which is which was great and exactly right because it blended straight out of dialogue into music, um, into song. Um, I think that probably Moss, of all people, I read Moss's wonderful biography, Act One, And if you read that, you have to say what a generous, sweet man he was. He came from extremely humble beginnings himself. And I think any other producer would
1: have sent me home. Moss Hart did quite the opposite. Instead, he dismissed the cast for a long weekend and worked alone with Julie Andrews on the top floor of the New Amsterdam Theater, a scruffy, dirty place in those days. And anyway, no, I knew going down to this... uh, New Amsterdam,
2: that I was in for an awful time. It was a little bit like going to the dentist. You knew it was going to be very painful, but you, if you could stick it out, maybe with luck, you'd come out feeling a heck of a lot better. And that's what Moss did for me. It was painful. And he said, we have no time for embarrassment. We have no time for um, anything but the blunt truth. And he shaped, pushed, cajoled, wheedled, loved me, yelled at me, uh, just helped me become Eliza Doolittle. And although by the following Monday, I'm sure I retreated 50%, I had gained 50%. And uh, it gave me the foundation from which to really start working on the role. I I, I had a feeling that if I didn't cut it that weekend, that I probably would have been on a plane back to London. Um, But Moss was a very kind man and uh, covered it by wit and, and uh, sophistication and, and all of the things that he'd acquired. But basically, I think he must have sensed and, and identified with my early pain and fear because he'd had it too. And um, he was kind. It's, it's as simple as that. He wanted to, uh, maybe he was perceptive enough to see, I mean, maybe I didn't know that, that there was something that they felt was there. Um, I certainly didn't, but he certainly seemed to feel that it was there. And I played My Fair Lady for three and a half years. And Alan Lerner once said that he felt that a long run in a very good role was more help to a performer than doing repertory with lots and lots of short roles. You might become very facile, but what I did was learn what did get a laugh, what didn't get a laugh, and why I didn't get it if I didn't get it, what the difference was uh, in terms of um, it raining outside or snowing or an audience that was coughing their hearts out or one that was too hot in the uh, seasons when your leading man has a headache or when you have a voice that's hanging on by a thread. I think I learned in My Fair Lady everything that set me up in later years uh, in good stead, because um, I really learned how to preserve and take care of myself, and I was learning on my feet every single performance.
0: Just you white, Henry Higgins, just you white. You'll be sorry, but your tears will be too light.
1: It's one of the great musical theater roles for a woman, Julie Andrews says, because Eliza developed so dramatically as a character. It's a Cinderella transformation, really, without the convenience of fairy dust. And yet, physically, it was a grueling three and a half years. The yelling on stage, the rage in the first couple of songs, the Cockney accent, and then the pure, pure singing that follows.
0: I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have more. Have
2: and uh, when I finished, it was like, well now what do I do with my life? I have no life, uh, because it, it is in a way becoming a nun or just disappearing into this long tunnel. And Wednesdays always seemed very black to me. Black Wednesdays was the day that you had two shows and got up feeling awful on Thursday and had to pull yourself up only to be slammed back into the Saturday matinee again uh, because they were exhausting. And it is one of the hardest roles, my fair lady. I don't think I know um, any of the Eliza Doolittles that truly survived vocally
1: or physically. They all, it took its toll on all of them. But somehow, during the just as hectic year she played Eliza in London, she did manage to fall in love and get married to a childhood friend, Tony Walton, who by then had become a set and costume designer. She'd barely finished My Fair Lady when Moss Hart lured her back to New York to star in the next Learner and Lowe musical, Camelot. She played Guinevere to Richard Burton's King Arthur. The role that did not come her way, though, was Eliza Doolittle in the movie version of My Fair Lady. Instead, that went to Audrey Hepburn, which didn't sit well with Andrew's many fans.
2: But I understood very well when they cast Audrey Hepburn in the role because although by then I was a fairly big name in in the small pond that is Broadway, I certainly wasn't known across America, and I certainly had never made a movie. So um, I didn't get the role of uh, My Fair Lady in the uh, film, and lo and behold, uh, I was in Camelot, and uh, Walt Disney came to see Camelot. He was advised to see it because he was putting together this movie of Mary Poppins. He came backstage afterwards. I thought he was just going to visit, and he said, um, would I like to come to Hollywood? I was on Broadway. Would I like to come to Hollywood to uh, um, see the drawings the d- designs, the art, the uh, hear the songs and the lyrics for this musical of, of an English book, Mary Poppins, that he was doing. Oh, and I was just a teeny bit pregnant, like about two to three months pregnant, and I said, but I'm going to have a baby, Mr. Disney. He said, it's okay, we'll wait. <laughs> and uh, so Tony and I uh, went to um, Hollywood, and Walt showed us everything to do with Mary Poppins, and also uh, wined and dined us so sumptuously and so wonderfully. And it was such an easy thing to do to say, yes, thank you, Mr. Disney. I would love to do that movie. Because everything seemed to come full circle. Because all the stuff in um, Poppins had that rumty-tum quality of being vaudeville. And all of a sudden, I thought, right, I'm can, uh, I, i I'm home. Because this I can embrace and perhaps bring something, too again in the kindest hands possible um i was taught how to make a movie and that was the beginning of that how lucky can anybody get losing out on my fair lady and three months later being asked to do mary
0: poppins what a sight chim chimini chim chimini chim chim when you're with a sweep you're in glad company
3: the moment that you stood on stage and Sidney Poitier opened the envelope and said who was going to win the Best Actor, Actress Award, and, and that was such a field: Sophia Loren, Debbie Reynolds, Anne Bancroft. Yes,
2: I, I was convinced that Anne Bancroft was going to walk away with the actual uh, Oscar award, and I was totally surprised.
0: Oh, this is lovely. Uh, I know you Americans are famous for your hospitality, but this is really ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, I have so many thank yous, I only know where to start and that's with Mr. Walt Disney and naturally he
3: has the largest thank you of all. I was taking an exam and got in trouble for going chim chim yeah <laughs> In the exam? <laughs> yes, it just, I was nervous and I was doing this and oh people my gosh. must come up to you all the time and talk about their favourite. Did it help? Moments. I have to know the answer. Well, I got yelled at. They thought I was cheating and <laughs> I thought it was okay.
2: Oh. Uh, How could you be cheating singing?
3: (laughs) Wait, they just saw my mouth moving. Oh, I see, I see.
2: Oh, (laughs) that's really rotten.
3: Um, Is it hard to be seen as the character Mary Poppins?
2: No, not at all. Not Mary Poppins or Maria von Trapp or any of the characters that I've done. I mean, I'm the lucky lady that was asked to do those amazing movies that happen to be family movies and give so much pleasure to people, including me, and how could I knock it or put it down? I think it's sensational that I was asked to do that. But do
3: they come up to you and think, okay, you're Mary Poppins, you're wisdom with an umbrella, tell me this, you know?
2: Um, I think people think I know a lot more than I actually do, and I have to say I was acting. (laughs) But no, I'm teasing. Uh, Children do think that that's what you're all about, that's part of the wonder of it, really.
0: It's super supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious
1: The year after Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews was back at the Oscars, this time nominated for her role in The Sound of Music. At the time, this was in 1965, it was the most successful film of all time, and it remains at the top of most people's list 50 years later. Every summer, crowds fill the 25,000-seat Hollywood Bowl and other outdoor concert venues for massive sing-along Sound of Music screenings. When I play this next clip, I double-dare you not to at least hum along even if you're in a public place listening right now on headphones.
0: Doe, a deer, a female deer, ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself, far, long, long way to run.
1: Julie Andrews has nothing but gratitude for these defining roles in her career, but she also has enjoyed at times messing with her image as a goody-two-shoes, especially in films by her second husband, the brilliant comic director Blake Edwards. In SOB, for instance, she famously bared her breasts, and in Victor Victoria, she played a female singer who masquerades as a male singer working as a female impersonator. Blake Edwards wasn't her only comic collaborator, though. Julie Andrews has a decidedly funny side, even if it's not what first comes to mind. Unless you've been around long enough to remember the appearances she made with her dear, dear friend, comedian Carol Burnett. Here they are together in 1962 at Carnegie Hall.
0: What do you wanna do now? You wanna sing something together? What do you mean, the two of us singing the same thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, is that wise? Won't it seem strange? Won't it be confusing, both of us singing the same song? Not if we're careful. (laughs) I mean, we could start off very slowly. All right, I tell you what. What? (laughs) I thought it would be a good idea if we did a history of the musical comedies in the United States, you know, singing songs representative of the various epochs or eras, if you will, as they were handed down through the ages and into history. Huh? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Every
3: little movement has a meaning (laughs) all its own. What's your bond with Carol Burnett?
2: We have, I think, fairly similar backgrounds. We come from different countries, but she also came from a very difficult childhood. Do you know much about her? beginnings and things, Well, she also had alcoholic parents and so on. She uh, had to struggle and make something of herself. Um, And the guts that that took and the bravery to be a really strong comedian at the time, I don't think I'd have had that kind of courage. But, but, When we finally met and everybody said, you're gonna love each other and we thought that would be the kiss of death, you know, oh, you're going to adore this person, Uh, no. But in fact, it was as if two kids had been living on the same block and suddenly discovered that they were. And she and I bonded the very first time we met, never stopped talking and we still are doing just that. Do you talk every week? No, well, no. Um, But I happened to meet her just last night as of this interview. And I don't think anybody else got a look in H-Ways. I mean, whenever we get together, we talk nonstop. And uh, it's a friendship that has stayed true and is hugely generous. She's generous and I, I feel that I am to her. We know each other very well. And we're sort of similar. Um, she's got a lot of discipline and, and passion too. And the fun of working with her is delicious.
3: Yeah. And the fun of laughing with her. There's a oh, she cracks good, me up. Yes. There's a good story going around about the two of you at LBJ's inauguration. <laughs> yes. Oh,
2: dear. I've told it many times. Um, we we both, we had done a couple of very good television specials together. At, and at the end of those television specials, we sang perhaps a 15-minute medley of the songs that were famous for the last 10 years, and um, we were asked to do one of those medleys at the inaugurational, uh, inauguration concert for LBJ when he was becoming president. Um, I think it was the second, he, he was sworn in because of the sadness of, of Kennedy, but next time he won, I think that was when the, there was an inauguration concert. So off we went to Washington and um, to do our little medley together. And everybody was there. It was a huge, huge evening um, of of really important people from all over the world. She and I stayed close together in the hotel so that we could talk and be together and so on. And a friend of ours was Mike Nichols, whom we both knew very well and was coming down to also do the concert. And he had called and said, I'm gonna be coming in late, I'm coming down on the train, but if you girls are both up and still about after your rehearsals. Maybe we could all get together and have a drink or a hot chocolate or something like that. He didn't phone for a very long time. And um, Carol and I got into our pajamas and we ready for bed. It was like 11 o'clock at night, I think. And we said, maybe he's not made it. Maybe it was snowing and it was raining and God knows what. So we were just about to call it a night when the phone did ring And he said, my train was late, and is it too late to come down and give you a hug? And we said, no, come on. He said, I'll be right down, and he hung up. We both decided that we'd potter down the the hallway to meet him at the elevator. We were in our dressing gowns of all crazy things, but the hotel was unbelievably quiet and rather dark, and we thought he wouldn't know where our room was, so why not escort him back? At the bank of elevators, was a a big bench. And we both sat on the bench and sort of twiddled our thumbs. And one of us, I can't remember which one it was, said, well, let's be doing something silly so that Mike gets a laugh out of it when he gets out of the elevator. And uh, she swears it was me, I swear it was her um, that I said it. Um, And... One of us said, well, I tell you what, let's be kissing when the doors open from the elevator. And we both thought this was, at that hour of the night, we both thought this was the funniest, silliest thing that two girls could do. The elevator went ping and uh, I flung her across my lap and bent her into my arms in a fake embrace. And the doors to the elevator opened And that elevator was packed with secret service men who just were standing there and had the wrong floor had opened the doors. And as the doors closed, you could see them all thinking, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Well, she and I, having thought we were funny, we now were almost weeping with delight (laughs) and stupidity. However, the elevator went ping. So I said, it's gotta be Mike. He said he was coming right down back to our original um, Position of the hug, and a perfectly strange lady stepped out. Carol will tell you in her version of the story that it was Lady Bird. It wasn't, but she <laughs> always was prone to exaggerate. <laughs> the lady got out of the elevator, saw us in this embrace, and walked on down the hall. Carol was so mortified that she dropped to her knees and scuttled round behind the sofa. <clears throat> the lady. I was left sitting there and the lady stopped and you could see her shoulders just lift a little and she turned and came back and she leaned over the back of the sofa and said, excuse me, but are you Carol Burnett? And Carol put her hand up over the sofa and said, yes, and this is my friend, Mary Poppins, she said. At which point uh, she quickly got out of there. Our, our, Our lady went on down the hall thinking she'd met two mad people. And the elevator went ping and I dragged Carol back and it was Mike. And he got out of the elevator and took one look at us in our embrace. And she just said, oh, hi girls. And he walked on down the hall. It was just a perfect capper. So it made for a great story and it's absolutely true.
3: What does your ability to laugh and to have pranks, here you are at inauguration, you're both big stars, <laughs> well, you're both
2: doing this, what does it say? Life is crazy, all of it. It's wonderfully crazy and silly and funny. And
3: I can yeah. tell you have fun. Oh, yes. You're kind of sure. badass, Julie Anders. Kind of
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truthfully, I am. And, and uh, Carol and I connect with each other, and she makes me... M- more badass and I make her more, I don't know what, but it's complete opposite of what you would imagine. Um, she makes me free and able to play and be a lot more bawdy than I would if I was on my own. And uh, I'm not sure what I give her, but I know it's something. It's marvelous
3: when one plus one equals seven, isn't it?
2: Oh God, yes, absolutely.
3: It doesn't happen all that often.
2: No, I've been very lucky in that respect. A lot of people that I've worked with, I've remained friends with, and most of them, in fact.
1: With all of Julie Andrews' optimism and talk of good fortune, it feels a little hard-hearted to bring up the tragedy that befell her career in 1997. But I'd be remiss to leave it out. At the time, her famous four-octave voice was feeling strained. A specialist in New York diagnosed her with a non-cancerous polyp on her vocal cords. And even though it's a manageable condition, he recommended they remove it. But something went terribly wrong during the surgery, and her singing voice was destroyed. Andrews filed a malpractice suit and reached a settlement. But her glorious 50-year career as a singer first and foremost was over, an unimaginable loss for Julie Andrews, and for us all. I was definitely devastated. That was a very bad time in my life.
3: Was there a moment you realized, oh my God, I went into this operation, they never said I could walk out unable to sing, and that." I think
2: I knew the moment the operation was over, um, that something wasn't quite right. From the way that the, um, the specialist at the time, I'd chosen what I thought was a very, very good man and I can't, I'm not supposed to talk about it. I've I've settled in my mind, there's a piece about it and it's a long time ago. But when a year went by and I still couldn't sing a note, I thought, oh my God, something's really wrong because I expected to be back at work in about uh, two or three weeks. And so then I made inquiries and then I found the specialist that I, that finally helped me at least have a good speaking voice and so on. But after about a year, I thought, well, if this is not to be, I'm going to go crazy unless I find something to do for myself. I can't just sit around uh, wallowing in self-pity and depression, because that would be the end of everything. I, I can't think of a, a worse existence than just to say, oh, poor me, poor me, and what am I going to do? And for the time being, it's, it was when I began to write, I'd written a little bit beforehand, but um, it happened that I was starting my first memoir and had been asked to do it. And my publisher said, do you have anything for kids? And I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I've published two books for children already. They said, do you have anything for very small kids? And I said, well, let me think about it. And I went home to my daughter, Emma, who's a far better writer than I am.
1: Dozens of books later, they are still writing. Titles like The Great American Mousical and The Very Fairy Princess Follows Her Heart. Julie Andrews also began to enchant new generations of moviegoers with non-singing roles in movies like The Princess Diaries and in animated films as a voiceover actress. She was Princess Fiona's understanding mom in Shrek and Gru's lascivious and evil mom in Despicable Me.
2: These are my diving instructors, Vincenzo and Paolo. <laughs> Ciao, boys. Uh, so, what do you want? Mom, do I have a twin
0: brother? Uh, how did you find out? Who told you? Wait, what? It's true? You never told me I had a brother? And you told me that Dad died of disappointment
1: when I was born! (laughs) She loved getting the chance to play a diabolical character. Since her vocal trauma, Julie Andrews has also made TV appearances and speaking engagements. And she's done some theater directing, including a 60th anniversary revival of My Fair Lady in Sydney, Australia, which was a huge success. And one time, several years ago, she even returned to the British stage after a 30-year hiatus to sing a bit and share stories. That night, she joked with the audience, I can still sing the hell out of Old Man River. So when it comes to the topic of hardship, Julie Andrews says she lives by the words Maria von Trapp famously said in The Sound of
0: Music. When the Lord closes a door... Somewhere he opens a window.
1: Or as Julie Andrews put in her own words to interviewer Mary Jordan, life has continuously turned page after page for her. It's been partly good fortune, partly perseverance, and partly some sort of angel on her shoulder that comes to help during times of the greatest stress, whispering, calm down, it'll be okay we end our visit with the legendary Julie Andrews where her career began on the stage.
3: Well, I can think of few things more stressful than opening night.
1: Yes, that's when uh,
2: that's when in the bathroom, just before you go on stage, that's when that angel comes and says something uh, reassuring or whatever, you know?
3: Do you say a prayer? Do you say, really hope I don't blow this? I don't
2: pray very often, but I must say that on opening nights I have. <laughs>
3: yes. What do you think is the hardest part about performing live?
2: That's a very, very good question. It's different every night. And Arthur, unlike film, where you could be in close up or, you know, a headshot or medium shot or long shot. Uh, you are in full figure the whole time performing live. So the entire body is being seen, so you have to be careful of how you move, where you stand, how you stand, and so on. But over the years, for me, performing live has become a joy because it took me a long time to learn that it is the giving that is the, the real joy. If you can help somebody at any performance or every performance forget that at home there's a tax man or a kid that's maybe got the measles or you're not having a good life or something and you can make them forget for three hours that there are problems out there and they're just having a wonderful time, that is ultimately what my job is really as being on stage and that is a lovely thing to be able to do. That's, I think, the best of all possible theater. So you're not saying, oh my God, I'm being great tonight and what a terrific form I'm in. That's immediately going back inside yourself. But if you're in fact sending it out and saying, isn't this something, Um, that's a pleasure. And it is a pleasure when the audience is with you and there are moments when it's really phenomenal. and there are nights when you struggle. I once said to somebody, why is it that some nights I think I'm doing very well on stage and I'm not? And somebody comes back and said, no, you weren't yourself tonight. And then another night, I'm thinking I've I've got a bit of a sore throat or a cold. And they said, no, you were great tonight. And then other nights, I know it, the audience knows it, and we're all happy. And I said, I don't, I need to know what's the difference. And one of them is when you're saying, I'm in great form tonight, aren't I doing well? The nights that you're not feeling great, you've got to make that extra effort to reach out and connect, which is what you're supposed to do. And it works if you're lucky. And then there are some nights when you truly are healthy and the audience is great and you know it and it all works. But it's an interesting combination depending on any number of things, audience, whether yourself, whether your leading man has a bad throat or a headache or you know,
3: do you have any tricks to kind of get ready, feel confident, say i'm gonna I'm gonna really win the night? I think the only
2: trick I have, and it's taken me a long, long time to learn it. I wouldn't call it a trick as much as a an attitude. It is. When I was very young and performing on stage, I used to sort of sing my little arias and hope that people, that with the attitude, oh God, you know, I do hope I hope you like what I do and I hope you'll, this is when I was very, very young. And now I say, oh, how great that you're all here. And it's turning what you're bringing on its head, turning it round, in other words, instead of saying, I do hope you'll like me, you're saying, oh wow, what a great evening we're gonna have. and. I'm gonna love it and I think you're here
1: because you want to love it. And if you can show up on stage or anywhere in life with that attitude, Julie Andrews says, you're already a quarter of the way there. Dame Julie Andrews spoke with Washington Post correspondent Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement in 2018, and with Gail Eichenthal in 2004.
0: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings, these are a few of my favorite things.
1: And while we're on the topic, I have to plug two previous episodes you need to check out. Well, don't miss any of them, of course, but especially make sure you listen to the one with Julie Andrews BFF, Carol Burnett, and the one with Bartlett Shear, who directed the most recent New York revival of My Fair Lady. You can find them both and every episode of What It Takes on Spotify or iTunes or Simplecast, wherever it is you find great podcasts. I'm Alice Winkler. And this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. Sad.
0: I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so. Bad.
1: Our funding comes from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.